On this week's OIS Retina Podcast, we have the privilege of talking to Steve Pacola, MD. Steve is an industry veteran who has held key leadership roles in preclinical and clinical development, regulatory affairs, and medical affairs. Currently, he serves as Chief Medical Officer at Regenex Bio, a leading clinical stage biotechnology company seeking to improve lives through the curative potential of gene therapy. Hello, welcome back, everyone. This is Faraz Rahal for the OIS Retina Podcast. I'm a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates here in Los Angeles, where I'm based, and I'm a partner at Excite Ventures, which is based in New York, but has multiple locations. I'm very happy to have as my guest today, Steve Pacola, who is a doctor, an MD, but he's in the business side of things, at least at this point in his career. He's the chief medical officer for Regenex Bio. He's had a number of other positions, which I'll go over in a minute. Hello, Steve. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Faraz. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, I, I went over some of your history, and I know a little bit of it from before because we've met and talked before and in this context and others. You, it looks like you have a very long history in biopharma and drug development. Uh, I saw that you were in the cardiovascular space with Boehringer Engelheim, which, uh, as I recall, I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. They had a big, uh, big office building in Danbury. I don't know if you were. That's situated. right. Yeah, the Ridgefield uh, Danbury office. That's where uh, exactly. it was at. Correct. Is that where you were? Yeah, you know that. So that phase. So most of my my drug development experience has been ophthalmology and mostly retina. But I did do some cardiovascular. Yeah. Uh, work, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, and it actually, interestingly enough, was my experience in cardiovascular that led to me going to Thrombogenics, which was originally a cardiovascular-focused company based on their, their work with uh, microplasmin. I didn't know that. I mean, I know the product, uh, Jetria, and I know the microplasmin. Yeah and I've used it myself a number of times. We were in the clinical trials in our group yep. back then. I, I, I know you are with Ram Polanki now, and he was part of that group as well. I didn't know it started in cardiovascular space. What was it intended to do there? Yeah, it's fascinating. The, the founder, uh, Desiree Collin, uh, a, a physician scientist from uh, Belgium, Belgium, who... Uh, had a lot of the initial IP around TPA, tissue plasmid engine activator. So his mission was to come up with newer and better thrombolytic agents. Okay. So that's really what thrombogenic started out as. And when I joined the company, they were advancing microplasmin as a thrombolytic. When, when I joined, uh, I was aware of work that Mike Tracy and George Williams had done with autologous pl plasmin. Sure. And given my uh, original training in ophthalmology, uh, I kind of put two and two together thanks to the, the work that those guys and others had done. And long story short, over a matter of a few years, we morphed into an ophthalmology company because we realized the, the potential uh, to advance and really make a difference with microplasmin actually made more sense in terms of treating uh, vitreo retinal traction and macular holes. So that sort of got me back away from cardiovascular back into uh, ophthalmology. 
and you, you ended up from there uh ram and i in your run and then you were with airpo as well yeah so then uh yeah after uh trey advanced uh it got approval uh, of course i i then moved on to uh a couple smaller uh ventures so really seeking to see if I could do it again or, or, or be a part of earlier stage uh, programs and advance them into and along the clinic. So Amichem was a, a company focused on uh, glaucoma uh, treatments uh, and particularly the, the row kinase pathway. Uh, we ran into roadblocks there like others have where, yes, indeed, we, sh we showed in the clinic we could lower IOP, but not quite enough to really be an advance for, for treatment of glaucoma. And then I uh, moved on to AirPO where we were working on TIE 2 activation as a uh, treatment for retinal vasculopathies like uh, diabetic retinopathy. And that was until uh, a year and a half ago when I joined uh, Regenex Bio. And you mentioned Ram, who, uh, Ram Polanki, who'd already uh, uh, joined uh, Regenex Bio about six months before I had. And it was from speaking to Ram and others that I, I realized the, the excitement around the platform that exists here in terms of gene therapy not only for treating monogenic disorders, which is kind of the traditional uh, approach of using gene therapy, but also uh, an innovative approach of actually using gene therapy to deliver a therapeutic protein to treat more common diseases like wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy. And uh, yeah, so I, I joined on uh, about a year and a half ago, and it's been uh, a great ride so far uh, where we've been advancing our lead program, RGX314, for uh, uh, treatment of wet AMD, and more recently, uh, treatment of diabetic retinopathy. And what really kind of excited uh, me was well, it's kind of a unique aspect of people hear gene therapy and they think, oh, that's risky or, you know, how do you know it'll work? And yes, any kind of new modality, uh, the probability of, of success you have to take into account. But on the other hand, of the, the potential targets that you could go after anti-VEGF and targeting VEGF, with gene therapy, what a great validated target that we have based on everything we know about wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy and the other VEGF-driven retinopathies. So really a, a, a neat opportunity to advance gene therapy in a place where you expect anti-VEGF to work based on everything that, that we know, but the, the big unmet need now we're seeing is the the unsustainability of the frequent injections that you and your colleagues have to go through in, indefinitely and your patients, and that in the real world, the patients aren't getting the injections they need because of uh, the treatment burden that exists with this. So uh, certainly I've seen that in in my, my years, the uh, uh, 
other companies going after more durable treatment options, uh, like uh, some of the agents that are in, in development now. So really just excited to, to work on something that is kind of the, the ultimate in durability, which would be a one-time treatment that you could uh, really address the treatment burden for these patients. Well, gene therapy is such a broad thing, and I, I'm definitely going to get into some specifics with you. We have you, and we have your expertise. I want to I want to pick at that a little bit. It's definitely sexy and exciting, and for all the reasons you said in our space, the durability factor. But it also sounds like a unique way to really treat disease. And and a little later, I want to get into this monogenic versus like a wet AMD concept, but. Since I'm sort of novice, and I think a lot of people who are listening won't clearly understand it at your level, but maybe you can help us understand some of the basics. Let's start with the basics. This is an AAV vector that your company is using. There's some newer ones I read about in in your program. These are non-replicating viral delivery vehicles. How does this work sort of in a broad sense so we can understand, uh, is there a capsid, is there DNA material? How does it then get in the cell and do what it's supposed to do? And then ultimately, why are these current versions better than earlier versions? Yeah, it's uh, a a key question. So you say gene therapy, uh, but ultimately you got to find safe and effective ways of of doing that. And, And a lot of what we've learned in the field over the years is that it, it really comes down to the components of how you deliver it and to see how effectively and how safely you can do it. So to, to start with uh, gene therapy, you, you can think of it uh, first as either ex vivo or in vivo gene therapy. So uh, you'll have heard, and the listeners will have heard about CAR-T therapy and some other therapies for uh, bloodborne uh, lymphomas, leukemias. Those are ex vivo gene therapies where you actually take the patient's cells and you modify the genome ex vivo and then put their their cells back in into the patient. And there there have been a few approved therapies like CAR-T for this. What we're doing is uh, true gene therapy where you, you actually give a, a vector with the, the gene to the patient to actually deliver the, the gene uh, to the patient's own cells so that the, those cells can actually produce the protein based on that uh, genetic material, coding material. And Within the in vivo gene therapy space, you can think of two main different settings of what you're going after. One is uh, generally rare monogenic disorders where a patient's own particular single gene is either uh, missing or or non-functioning, and that leads to a, a monogenic disorder. And the goal there is to use gene therapy to actually deliver a functional copy of that gene into the patient's cells and into the the nucleus of those patient's cells to produce that missing or or malfunctioning protein. And that, of course, uh, uh, a famous example in in our space, of of course, is Luxterna for 
treatment of biallelic uh, RP65 uh, LCA, uh, which was really a, a milestone for not only retina gene therapy, but overall gene therapy uh, around the world as the first in vivo uh, gene therapy uh, approval. Uh, now that's, again, that's kind of the traditional approach or the way people commonly think of gene therapy, but then it does open the door for, hey, maybe gene therapy can be used to address more common complex disorders that are multi-genetic, things like wet AMD uh, and other VEGF-driven retinopathies, where instead of delivering a missing gene, you deliver a therapeutic protein. So in our case, we deliver a, uh, the transgene is a, a, a monoclonal, monoclonal antibody fragment that is extremely similar, only one amino acid different from ranibizumab uh, in our particular case. So one aspect is having the right transgene to produce the, the protein that you want. And then the other issue more broadly, or one of the other big factors is, well, how do you, what vector do you use to actually deliver that? And over time, the most common and the most tested and the most validated approach has been using viral vectors. And the, the reason this has worked out well is viruses to survive have developed a pretty neat mechanism of replicating in a, a host cell system where basically, uh, if we go back to our uh, immunology, virology uh, lecture hall, uh, you, you have a virus uh, such as the AAVs that are basically an outer shell that's the capsid that's made up of, of the capsid proteins. And basically that protects and it houses the genetic material of the virus. And what's interesting is that genetic uh, material inside encodes for the proteins that make up the, the capsid shell, as well as the proteins that are required to allow the, the virus to replicate. So it's an ideal uh, nature-derived approach that you basically hijack the, the viral uh, machinery to allow to use uh, the virus as a, a vector to deliver to the host cells and then the virus is enveloped uh, uh, in an uh, endosome and actually can get into the nucleus where fortunately in the case of AAV it doesn't integrate into the host cells DNA it just exists as an uh, episome of genetic material and of all these different uh, viruses you, you basically want to find one that isn't pathogenic and ideally one that doesn't integrate into the the host cell dna because you don't want to have the risk of it creating uh, other problems by getting into the 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 host cell dna itself so those are a couple of the factors that make AAV uh, preferable to other vectors that, that people have tried. One, uh, we know AAVs are non-pathogenic, 
In other words, they don't cause disease. So that's a positive. We know that they're less immunogenic than other vectors like adenovirus. Um, so these are, are some of the factors that first led people to advancing adeno-associated virus vectors. And you mentioned that there are, there's a lot of uh, uh, numbers that, that go along with these based on how many of these have been discovered. So the first generation of AAV vectors are uh, AAV1 through AAV6. And the one that most people are familiar with uh, because it's the one where most of the work has been done is AAV2. And that actually was the vector that, that uh, was used for Luxterna, for example, as well as a lot of the other uh, initial clinical trials that were, were done for uh, retinal diseases. Uh, now, I did mention that these are less immunogenic than, say, adenovirus, but it, it turns out that we've learned a lot since the initial discovery of those initial viral vectors, and that's actually the origin of our company, Regenex Bio. Uh, so if I, I give you a little quick history, in uh, the early 2000s at the University of Pennsylvania, Jim Wilson, one of the pioneers in, in gene therapy, discovered uh, over 100 uh, additional AAV vectors uh, that have various addition, additional numbers uh, beyond those original ones. So these are all referred to as different serotypes. And the, the reason these are important is each different serotype has different characteristics based on their, their capsids. So that becomes very relevant because those different characteristics lead to different uh, characteristics in terms of how well do they lead to transduction of different cells? How well do they lead to protein expression? How durable is the protein expression over time with different viral vectors? Even though generally AAVs are less immunogenic, we've found that a lot of these newer generation vectors, uh, our platform technology, we call these the NAV platform technologies of next generation vectors, that these have a lot of favorable characteristics. And the ones that we've focused the most on based on what we've seen and what we've characterized are AAV8 and AAV9. So, AV8, for example, is the vector that we use with our lead program, RGX314. And AV9, which is the vector that we use in our non-ophthalmic CNS platform gene delivery uh, program. And the reason we've honed in on these two particular serotypes is these positive characteristics. So we, we've seen with both these vectors much higher protein expression and much more durable protein expression than was possible with the first generation vectors. And we've seen that they have a lower immunogenic potential. So these are all factors that uh, allowed us to advance not only our ophthalmic uh, programs, but also our, our non-ophthalmic uh, programs. And the, the determination about immunogenicity and 
protein expression in, in light of what you just said? Is this just lab experimental trial and error? Are there clues to which ones may be better or worse in advance, or do you just have to put them in the lab and test them individually? Yeah, it's, it's uh, a great question. I think putting it in the lab is the best way because you really see in a in vivo setting. Uh, there's been a ton of, of work over recent years in, in different ways of trying to improve the, these different characteristics of, of the vectors. Uh, other approaches that people have tried have been uh, accelerated evolution approaches where you just try to create a lot of different uh, mutations over time in an accelerated fashion. But ultimately then you have to test, well, do those changes make yeah, do they work? a particular better vector less immunogenic or allow for greater uh, expression? The other key factor I, I forgot to mention is also tropism. It's not just a matter of uh, how well you can transduce cells, but for different diseases, you want to have greater selectivity to be able to target specific tissues. And AAV8 and AAV9 are good examples of that, where we know we get very good tropism towards retina, for example, as a target tissue. And for AAV9, very good target uh, selectivity or tropism for neural tissue, including the CNS. So uh, to answer your question, you really got to test it. And, and we've seen also the hard way over the last couple of decades that you can see very encouraging signs in small animal models, and then you go to a non-human primate, and those apparent benefits disappear. So it, it's been a, a long slog. <laughs> in all the pharma products, too, same thing, right? You yeah. Sometimes you get blindsided by something you didn't expect, uh, and I guess it's the same here. Yeah, and that's that's why for for us, you know, we we've evaluated all these in small animal models, but also large animal models, including non-human primate, to, to really confirm these favorable characteristics. Uh, but then ultimately, then you, you got to translate into the clinic. Uh, and we're starting to do that in both our uh, retina platform, as well as our, our non-ophthalmic uh, CNS platform, where we're demonstrating clear proof of concept in terms of not only being able to deliver the protein or sorry, the, the, the gene that then allows the cells to produce the protein, but we're seeing uh, good durability after one-time treatment. And we're seeing that translate into the pharmacodynamic uh, outcomes that we want to achieve by delivering those proteins. That's, that's very clear and, and great. And I want to get, into the clinical trials and your, your clinical programs in just a second. I had one other question. You, you said something that was educational to me. And again, I don't have a good background in this. Uh, the, the viral vector can commandeer the transcription making processes of the cell without incorporating into the host DNA. Are you saying it gets into the nucleus and just commandeers the mechanisms? Uh, without doing that, or can it happen both ways? Uh, depending on the vector, it can happen both ways. So, uh, for example, lentiviral gene delivery 
does actually integrate into the, the host DNA, the host cell DNA. But that then creates its own known of where is it integrating, what might it be knocking out or interfering with, or, or what unknown uh, outcome might that lead to. Uh, one benefit with lentiviral vectors is they have a larger capacity to that you can uh, insert much larger genes. So some programs have gone to lentivirus if they have very large proteins. And also for the ex, ex vivo gene therapy approach that, that I mentioned, you see that used. But for in vivo gene therapy, you'd prefer a vector like AAV that doesn't integrate into the host DNA. So uh, AAV is single-stranded uh, DNA genome, and then you, you put your, your transgene in there and you take out the replication genes so that you have the non-replicating uh, genome, and the, the virus is efficiently delivered into the nucleus. And just as you said, it just commandeers the, the basic uh, transcription machinery to allow uh, production of, of the, the, the RNA, et cetera, uh, to allow for uh, the eventual protein to be made in, in the cytoplasm. But it, it exists there without integration into the host DNA, correct? It's just brilliant, really. I mean, this is just brilliant stuff, and I'm glad you explained it to us, uh, to me and to the listeners in that way. Let's talk a little bit about the clinical programs, because I know uh, you want to tell me and I want to hear about it, and this is what probably most of our listeners are hearing about. Um, RGX314, it's the it's the one for all for a couple of different indications, wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy. Uh, you mentioned it, but which proteins are being made here? This is a ranibizumab-like protein that's, gonna, that's being made, and you're sort of creating a, a biofactory. What's the target cell? Yeah, so uh, that's right. It's a, uh, a FAB, so an antibody fragment, and the amino acid sequence is virtually identical to ranibizumab. It's literally only different by one amino acid. Uh, which is based on the reality of, if you think of uh, a fab molecule, uh, you have the, the light and heavy uh, component of that. Uh, and we produce both of those components as one protein that then gets cleaved to allow it to self-assemble as the, the antibody fragment that then has the ability to, to bind VEGF. Uh, and it's, it's because of how that cleavage occurs that you, you have a difference of a, a single amino acid, but we see uh, the same uh, intended effect uh, in vitro and, and in vivo. Um, so where, where are we targeting? As I, I mentioned uh, with our, our lead program, uh, we want to target the retina so we, we deliver subretinally, uh, and that's what we've done to date, for example, in our uh, initial first in human study in 42 patients uh, that included doses across five different uh, cohorts. We administered subretinally 
And what we've seen preclinically is with that route of administration, we have very good transduction of the RPE and the photoreceptors, as well as some of the other layers, but it's really predominantly RPE and photoreceptor. And just as you mentioned, the idea in this case is to allow the patient's own retina to serve as a biofactory to produce this therapeutic protein at a steady level and therefore obviate the need for repeated uh, peak and trough levels uh, with injection of the available anti-VEGF treatments. We've, we've seen very good proof of concept from this initial 42 patient trial where in our dose levels three, four, and five, we've seen a dramatic reduction in the need for re repeat injections with many of the patients needing absolutely no uh, further anti-VEGF injections. And importantly, this reduction in treatment burden has been achieved while maintaining or improving visual acuity as well as anatomy as measured by central retinal thickness and assessing for, for actual fluid. So based on those results, we're planning to proceed into pivotal uh, clinical development starting at the end of the year. Uh, we'll be announcing the details of, of that design later this year. In parallel with advancing subretinal delivery, we're also kicking off uh, clinical development of suprachoroidal delivery of RGX314. So the same exact uh, molecule, RGX314, but delivered into a, a different route or, or different plane uh, via the, the SCS micro-injector from uh, ClearSide, which we're in, in collaboration with for advancing this. And uh, there as well, uh, what we've seen preclinically is, is good transduction of the RPE and the photoreceptor. So the same uh, target tissue and, and retinal layers but just from a slightly different plane, but still fortunately very close to those that target tissue. And the, the thing we like about suprachoroidal delivery is one, it is close to your target tissue, so you don't have to give massive amounts like you do with intravitreal administration, uh, because with intravitreal administration, you have to give orders of magnitude more so that just to allow enough to diffuse to the back of the eye and to also get beyond the internal limiting membrane barrier to get enough transduction in the retina. And invariably with those high doses with intravitreal administration, you wind up with inflammation. So for those two reasons, we, we chose to go with suprachoroidal delivery for a office-based treatment option uh, to deliver RGX314 and we've seen preclinically that we do not have inflammation with suprachoroidal delivery, including in non-human primates. And it's based on that work that we then advanced to IND enabling studies. And we actually just earlier this month announced the dosing of the first patient in our Aviate study, which is evaluating suprachoroidal delivery of RGX314 for treatment of wet AMD. And that's actually the first patient ever dosed via this route of administration with gene therapy. 
So uh, a lot going on in, in both, both facets. Uh, we, we, we basically look at the, the subretinal delivery route is really the burden hand, uh, given the fact that subretinal delivery really is the gold standard in terms of safely and, and efficiently delivering gene therapy to, a, to the retina as a target tissue. And especially now that we've even shown this with our RGX314 uh, program with subretinal delivery for wet AMD patients. I agree about your comment uh, regarding the gold standard. At this point, you know, a lot of things could turn out to be the gold standard. And it, as a vitreoretinal surgeon, I like the subretinal delivery. It doesn't seem like a complex procedure from a uh, compared to other surgical approaches to gene therapy implants and so forth. And I'm involved in some of those trials as well. Which brings me to the question, is the the move towards suprachoroidal, at least to study it, let's not say you're moving in that direction, but you're planning to study it. Is that more, and I don't mean this negatively, is that more marketing so it can be said to be an office procedure or did your surgeons or your uh, trial results lead you to believe that there are safety questions about vitrectomy with subretinal uh, injection or instrumentation might not be the, the best answer? Or is it more of a marketplace question? I, I'd say on the, the clinical experience that we have to date, we've been very encouraged. Our retinal surgeons in our phase one, two study have not had an issue with uh, delivering the drug. So they've had an experience very akin to how you described it, where relative to what you all do as surgeons, this isn't a, a complicated procedure. Uh, and certainly you, you all have, have experience of creating uh, or, or injecting subretinally, for example, with TPA, sure. treat uh, subretinal hemorrhage. It's a little more uh, involved than that in that in, in this case, there isn't already an existing uh, a hemorrhage or-, or, or right. a you have to create so. the blend. Completely. So you, you, the the surgeon does have to create a retinotomy and, and go in. Yes. But we we've, we've been very pleased with how the surgeons are able to do this. I think one interesting aspect is it's also much easier than historically has been the case for treatment of inherited retinal diseases. So. There, you know, for example, the Luxterna case, there, there are certain centers who do those. Uh, but there, there's a reason for that in that with certain inherited retinal diseases, since you're replacing a, a missing gene or a non-functioning gene, there's an actual need to get the vector to where the action is, to the, the, the macula and the fovea, because you, you really need to get the the protein produced in that very local area in each of those individual cells uh, within the retina that you're targeting. The, then the, the other aspect, of course, is a lot of these are infants and young kids where the vitrectomy before you do the 
injection is inherently much tougher in, in young kids. And also that retina may be more friable right in that macular region in some of these inherited retinal diseases. One of the things we learned in, in doing this trial and working with our investigators is that because we're providing a therapeutic protein and, and the patient's retina is going to serve as that biofactory to produce anti-VEGF that will serve as a, a reservoir basically in the vitreous, in the, in the retina, we, we can produce that subretinal bleb anywhere. It doesn't have to be close to the, the macula. So for all those factors, it makes it uh, a less risky procedure and a more straightforward procedure we've seen. And you know, in our in our forty-two patients, there was only a single patient who didn't get a complete dosing, and that happened to be a patient in one of the earlier cohorts, where uh, the the surgeon created one retinotomy, uh, wasn't able to actually inject there so created another retinotomy but it he made it too close to the original retinotomy so all of the most of the drug leaked out of the first retinotomy hole so one of the things you learn in in practice so we we had a a criterion that uh if you are going to make more than one retinotomy to do your injection, make sure it's far away from your first one. In this particular case, we learned why that's <laughs> what you do. So there's there's some learning that goes along the way, but out of 42 cases, that that's pretty good. And now, now the issue is scalability. So now we'll be moving in our pivotal development to a lot more surgeons. But we have a, a surgery training team and we've learned you know, there's a lot of pearls we've learned from the existing surgeons in terms of standardizing training uh, and actually performing this. So we actually don't think it's going to be a problem. So it's it's not a need to go to an office-based, but let's face it, it still is a surgical procedure. So there's uh, it's the gold standard. It's the best, the most effective, safest way we know to achieve what you want to achieve, but if you could achieve similar safety and efficacy without going to the OR, then that would broaden the the patients that you would consider the benefit risk to be appropriate to, to go ahead with it. I totally agree with that, and that makes perfect sense. And these are older patients, and they have a natural disinclination to go to the OR themselves. So yes, options are, are great. It makes sense to me why this would have durability and last. Why wouldn't it continue in perpetuity? What happens that that dampens the effect later on, if it does? Yeah, one one consideration outside the the retina when when people think of, for example, liver-directed gene therapy for things like hemophilia. Or, or if you go for other target tissues where the cells are still dividing or where there's, uh, you know, not end organs with non-dividing cells is you, you can have a dilution or there, there's at least a theoretical belief that if, if you could have a dilution of the, 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 the vector. So the number of, of uh, gene copies 
that that you have per cell will go down over time if your if your cells are still dividing or you have cells dying off and other ones coming. That's one of the benefits of retina is that these cells are not dividing. So we don't expect there to be uh, any kind of dilutional effect. Even in the liver, we know with hemophilia, uh, now some of the early trials, some of those patients are now 10 years on and we see good durability. So based on that, and also with Luxterna, with, with each year that goes by, we have longer and longer follow-up of these patients that supports that we should have very good durability. Uh, ultimately, we're going to have to follow patients in those programs and our own programs to fully characterize that and see, do you have any decrease over time? But at least the available data we have from uh, other clinical trials suggest it should be for a very long time. So certainly for a wet AMD patient, we, we expect this to be a, a one and done uh, treatment option. When you start moving into younger patient populations like diabetic retinopathy, for example, that's obviously a longer uh, time horizon for, for those patients. And we'll, we'll have to see, but certainly based on the hemophilia trials, 10 years or, or longer. I'm glad you brought up retinopathy. That was what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, where are you with the diabetic retinopathy program now? Or is that um, heading into the clinical space and clinical trials now? Yeah, so uh, in addition to the suprachoroidal delivery for treatment of wet AMD study that uh, we started dosing on earlier this month, we also have announced that we're about to start another study with suprachoroidal delivery for treatment of diabetic retinopathy. So that'll be starting in a, in a matter of weeks. Uh, we chose suprachoroidal uh, delivery because we thought thinking of risk benefit, uh, particularly if we want to be able to treat asymptomatic patients before they develop the site-threatening complications, there would be a setting where a office-based approach would be the, the best to really address the unmet need that exists there right now, where we we know Lucentis and Ayalea work, uh, and that they not only regress existing diabetic retinopathy severity, but importantly, that translates into a sizable reduction in progression to uh, DME and PDR from the different studies that have been done. Uh, but in spite of that, and in spite of the label expansion for both Lucentis and Ilea, we know that uh, most retina specialists are not actually uh, providing this to, to their NPDR patients unless they have DME, of course. And that's not too surprising if you think of those those patients where, yes, you know they're at increased risk of developing the site-threatening complications, but do you really want to start them on a, a course of repeated intravitreal injections as opposed to just watching them more closely? Uh, so I, I I wonder how you and your, your group uh, deals with, with those patients. Uh, you know, I imagine there's some, you know, where 
weighing everything on a patient by patient basis, it, it makes sense. But it seems like in the real world for the majority of patients, given current treatment options, it, it just isn't making sense. It's a great question and an unbelievably important point. I actually have a lecture on this and um, the data on advanced non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy in the absence of macular edema with ILEA lucentis, the panorama study, it's phenomenal data. It's really yeah. profoundly good data if you view it as a patient yourself with the knowledge of retina and what a clinical trial means and how it works, you would want it for yourself. And every time I, I give the talk about this, I ask myself and sort of ask the audience at the same time, but why aren't we doing this? And we're not. And it has everything to do with the acceptability of the idea in the clinic to yourself and to the patient. How how realistic is this that I can inject an asymptomatic eye potentially in perpetuity again, you know, to, to what end point? Uh, but it is phenomenal data. And it, yeah, if you can achieve that kind of reversal of diabetic retinopathy with a much less frequent dosing regimen, if not single, but say infrequent, yeah. uh, I can't see why we wouldn't do it. it the, the, the data, yeah. the photographs, the clinical reversal of these patients with ILEA or Lucentis uh, given regularly is really incredible. It's, we've never seen this before. And to, to have that clinical data that, that clearly demonstrates that if you block VEGF, you, you can get these outcomes. So it's just a matter of what's a sustainable way to achieve that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if we think of ranibizumab port delivery system, in addition to uh, advancing in other areas, they're advancing in this population in diabetic retinopathy. And that's even with a, a surgical implant and albeit simpler refill still needing to refill and probably less frequently than every six months as you would need for uh, DME and wet AMD still needing refill. So that's almost a, like a, a uh, you know, so we have the clinical validation. We also have almost a commercial validation of yeah. others in this space recognizing this is a big unmet need. So for, so for us, the, the best way to deal with this would be an in-office one-time treatment and then you, you deal with the hurdle that seems to be preventing application of or translation of these great uh, study results into, into the real world. It, it's, a, it, it's an amazing uh, conceptualization and it sounds like a, a reality, which brings me to maybe the final question. You sort of touched upon this. We both did just now, but I'll give you a chance to, to elaborate. Um, where do you see this then going in the near, intermediate, and long term with the coming of other longer-acting drugs or, more importantly, drug delivery systems, some of which we're testing now, not just surgical but also gelatinous materials, uh, pharmaceutical products that can be, you know, uh, used as carrier molecules. With all this coming to extend the duration of these excellent drugs we've developed, uh, for retinopathy and for AMD and potentially other things, where do you see the gene therapy fitting in in that in that entire complex of treatments for our patients? Yeah, it's been great to see the advance 
of the field in general with new agents coming along that have the potential to be more durable to get us from, you know, originally monthly dosing, then I, I lay a every other month dosing, maybe every every uh, 12 weeks. Uh, Brolicizumab, of, of course, uh, before the, you know, unfortunate uh, occlusive vasculitis inflammatory aspect looked to be moving in that direction as well, incrementally getting a, a little more durability. Uh, some other agents that are interesting like uh, Kodiak and Graybug on that continuum of trying to get to every three, four, maybe five month dosing and the port delivery system that we discussed of, you know, maybe every six month dosing after having the, the implant in. So I think all these things are going in the right direction. There's still incremental benefits along the way. Uh, but I, I think we're seeing by the fact that these are being developed and that there's great interest in the retinal community to these incremental benefits supports the, the concept. So in a way, you can kind of think of them as competition, but they, they're actually more validation, again, of how valuable this would be for you and your colleagues and your patients to be able to... Uh, decrease the treatment burden. And really the ultimate way to do that would be a one-time treatment. I, I don't think there's, there's, there's never gonna be a one-time treatment that treats all the patients because it's a compl complex disease and there are you know some patients who don't respond to even very frequent anti-VEGF injections. And so I think that's also encouraging for not just how do you, you keep anti-VEGF around longer, but also some of the other interesting uh, experimental approaches out there, looking at other mechanisms, whether it's, you know, pan-VEGF, uh, you know, like the Optea program or Ferisimab going after another uh, mechanism of action. But I think all those approaches are really going to be incremental benefits in terms of uh, durability. So I... I think uh, near term, we still got to show it. We got to show it definitively in large studies. So that's kind of the near term step. But for us, if, if in our, our pivotal development, we can meet our target product profile of having at least as good a visual acuity and anatomic outcomes while dramatically reducing treatment burden, we we believe that's that's a win uh, and, a, and a further big advance over fortunately however far we can go with durability with the with the other agents and the other approaches totally clear and i agree and and good luck in those studies and i i want to thank you for coming on steve this has been a really very useful review of the entire concept of how to deliver gene therapy to the retina for these great clinical outcomes, Regenex Bio, and you should be congratulated. This is phenomenal stuff. Thank you for sharing with us today. Thanks so much, Faris. Thanks for uh, having me. We're glad you could listen in to our conversation with Steve Pacola, MD. 
We hope you found it as informative and forward-thinking as we did. For more great Retina content, tune in next time. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the OIS Retina Podcast at ois.net slash subscribe.